verses 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Jesus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So I just want to pray for Tom uh, as he brings the message tonight. Father, incredible passage, um, incredible depth and word um, from you. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate every word that comes from Tom tonight and that you would be, um, yeah, enabling him at every step and uh, in every sentence, Lord. Thank you so much for what you're going to speak tonight. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Rob. Really appreciate it. And stoked to be with you tonight. Uh, I hope uh, if you've been able to, um, I hope you've been able to enjoy catching up with friends and family as things have uh, started opening up. And this week, we're in our fourth week uh, looking at the Gospel of John, a series called uh, A Glimpse of the One and Only. And we're looking at this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. John zooms in on this conversation and gives us a lot of detail about what goes on. And it's really, really interesting because in this story, it showcases the goodness, the intentionality, the grace of the triune God as he breaks into our desperate situation to give us new life. 
It showcases his goodness, his intentionality, his grace as he breaks into our desperate situation to give us new life in his kingdom. And it's going to be both confronting and comforting as we track through this story. So if you keep your Bibles open, we're going to dive into it. And I hope that these things become clear as we work through the text. So we're going to start with point one, the process. The process of entering the kingdom. And we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Let's imagine the scene. So maybe Jesus is uh, around a campfire with his disciples after um, a a long day, or maybe he's in the home of a sympathetic um, disciple who's offered up their uh, house's accommodation to Jesus. And they're they're chatting about what's going on, debriefing some um, perplexing uh, parable that Jesus may have spoken about, and they're they're chatting and, and making the most of their time with him. And all of a sudden, they hear a knock on the door. And a man walks in, and it's not any man, but it's Nicodemus. And, 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 they, and Nicodemus and Jesus go off, and they want to have a conversation. Who is this guy? Who is Nicodemus? And I, I hope as we look at Nicodemus, it's actually going to give us a bit of a key to unlock uh, the start of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. So there's a few clues in the text that sort of explain who Jesus, sorry, who Nicodemus is, and uh, why this was. Uh, uh, momentous that he was coming and talking to Jesus. Firstly, it says he's a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of Jews committed to a very strict observance of the Jewish law. They were zealous about obedience to it, and they were committed to orthodoxy and purity. And so he's a very religious man. Additionally, it says that he was a ruler of the Jews. And the rulers of the Jews were were called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men who um, controlled all of the affairs under Rome in Jewish Palestine. So this guy is not just an average religious pastor or rabbi. This guy is a high-powered, greatly respected member of uh, the ruling body in Israel at the time. So it's like it would be like a federal MP rocking up or a Supreme Court justice rocking up at your after-work drinks while you're chatting there and hanging out. And a few things come out of the text as we read on. It says he came by night. He obviously doesn't want to be seen with Jesus or doesn't want to be seen affiliated with him or endorsing what Jesus is on about, but he still wants to have the conversation. So he's come at night. On top of that, his, his opening remarks to Jesus when he finally starts talking to him is very eloquent, very flattering. It's, it's ingratiating. And, and, and Nicodemus says, Rabbi, you're a, you're a teacher from God. God is clearly with you. He, he's buttering Jesus up, so to speak. So what do we do? What, what's, Jesus, what's Nicodemus up to here when we put um, all these clues together? What's Nicodemus up to here? Well, it seems like he's, he's come to examine Jesus or assess Jesus. It's not every day that you get a high-powered um, member coming up to your after-work drinks 
and, and wanting to ask questions and buttering Jesus up. It's clear he wants to assess him or, or examine him. And it's a bit like opposition research that politicians might do on the new kid on the block. They're trying to find out, is this guy in or out? Is this guy suitable for our cause or should we be trying to distance ourselves from him? That's what Nicodemus is trying to do. Is this guy, Jesus, is he in or out of what we're trying to do here? Jesus' reply is abrupt. It comes out of nowhere and actually stops Nicodemus before he even is able to ask a question. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus dives into a conversation about the kingdom of God. What what is this kingdom of God that he's brought up? Well, the kingdom is the culmination of the covenants, the promises that God made to Abraham, to David, that it's the, it's the kingdom that the prophets in the Old Testament foresaw and were pointing forward to where God would establish his eternal kingdom and he would restore his rule and reign over the world through a son of David. God would dwell with his people and they would be with him. And, and a world where God rules is a world where there's justice, where there's love, where there's beauty, where there's abundance, where there is righteousness. And for a Jewish leader like Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God was to participate in the kingdom of God at the end of the age when it finally comes. It was for the Jews and the Jews only. And if anything, Nicodemus with his credentials would be at the front of the line to participate in this kingdom. So why does Jesus bring this topic up? Why does he bring up the kingdom? Well, Nicodemus has come to do this opposition research to try and figure out whether Jesus is in or out. What's his suitability for their religious political affiliations? But Jesus goes, whoa, 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 hold up. He points to a far bigger question of suitability, a far bigger question of in or out that Nicodemus should be thinking about. It's are you in or out? Are you suitable for the kingdom of God? And Jesus makes a confusing claim about the kingdom of God and about being in or out. He says, one must be born again to see it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be born again? Like born again is thrown around in in church circles a lot. um, But what does it actually mean to be born again? Well, that's a good question. So in verse four, it says this. How can a man be born when he is old, says Nicodemus? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time to be reborn? Nicodemus doesn't get it. Maybe he's insulted. Maybe he's like you and me and he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? What does it mean to be born again? And it's funny, Jesus just doubles down on what he just said. In verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot even enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you won't even enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and the spirit. Again, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born of water and the spirit? Well, let's have a look at this. If you've got your Bibles open, you might see a little, a tiny little letter next to that phrase, being born of water and the spirit. Or maybe if you've got a study Bible, it would have a little reference to Ezekiel. But if we look at that passage, Ezekiel 26, sorry, 36 verses 25 to 27, it might help us make sense of what this phrase means, being born of water and spirit. I'll read it to us. 
And this is what um, the Lord says to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That's Ezekiel 36 verses 27 to 25 to 27. And you might be able to see the echoes and the overtones that Jesus is picking up on here in this phrase, being born of water and the spirit. This is a declaration from God. Jesus is making this declaration that the Holy Spirit is going to give his people a new heart, a new birth, a new creation, and an inclination to walk in the ways of God, to live rightly before him. And in the context of this conversation, he's saying to see and enter the kingdom of God, God, not us, is going to need to completely rewire us, completely transform us if we're going to see and enter that kingdom. Why is this necessary? Because to be honest, this flies in the face of what Nicodemus would have thought would get him to the kingdom, and it flies in the face of what we think gets us into our version of a kingdom or utopia. For Nicodemus, he's been born, raised, taught that strict observance of God's laws, love of God's law, um, submission to his will, that's what gets you uh, into the kingdom. Not only into the kingdom, but to the front of the line. But for us... We soak in a slightly different message, but it's similar to some extent because most people think, um, I'm not great, but I'm pretty good. On the cosmic scales you put me on, I'll come out as a good person at the end of things. For those who don't even accept that there is a spiritual reality, they think, well, if I, if I post the right things, if I say the right things, the most politically correct things, then I'll be accepted. I'll come out as a good person. We soak in this messaging that tells us we should try to be Good people, and if you try your best to be a good person, you'll get into the kingdom. But the Bible is just really candid and really frank and really honest about the human condition. Here, Jesus says, you can't even see or enter the kingdom of God unless God causes new birth in you, unless the Holy Spirit causes new birth in you. That's how blind we are. That's how unable we are to enter. In Romans, Paul says, All have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul goes on in Galatians 5 and he talks about how the human condition manifests in the world, in our lives. He says this, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, Division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like this. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life won't inherit the kingdom of God. And everyone here ticks one or many of those things off the list. And even if you don't want to take the Bible's word for it, you you can see you can see that there's something fundamentally wrong in the human condition. You can see there's something fundamentally wrong. Look at at today's society, see the political division, animosity. We've been living in a two-year pandemic where that's affected our physical health and our mental health. 
We have just been talking about a few weeks ago with the Ping Pongathon about how human trafficking is still alive and well in our world right now. There's, there's gossip that ravages our communities and can tear people down. Children bully each other at school. There's the, the cancer of pornography on our society. I, I could go on and on about the things that, are, that, that express this, this issue with the human condition. And the Bible's assessment is correct. <laughs> it says it stems from a broken relationship with God, or from us trying to usurp God from us trying to ignore God, from us trying to rebel against God and do our own thing. And the effects of that vertical relationship breaking down manifest in brokenness horizontally in our human-to-human relationships. And this is the issue when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because we are dead to God and we're dead to the ways that he wants us to live, we don't actually want to, in our natural state, be on right terms with God or be in his kingdom. That's why Jesus is saying you're unable to enter the kingdom. If this kingdom is a kingdom of loving God and loving your neighbors as yourself, in our natural state, we go, no, sir, I don't want that. If, as Tim Chester says, that the Bible talks about the heart as the driver of human behavior, that we always do what we want, then for us to be a part of that kingdom, for us to want to live under God's rule, and slowly live more and more aligned with that, then we're going to need a new birth. We're going to need new desires. We're going to need new life. In fact, it's like trying to talk to a dead corpse. When you talk to a dead corpse, there's no response. There's no movement. In the same way, the effects of sin go so deep that in our natural state, that's what we're like when we hear about God's kingdom. We don't respond. We don't want anything to do with it. We just nothing. And so what, what Jesus is saying is that God, the Holy Spirit, is going to have to get down into the mess and muck of our lives. He's going to have to break into the people who are unresponsive to him, and who, who are cutting ourselves off from him, and rebelling against him, and breathe life into their lungs. Cause them to be reborn. The Spirit is going to have to do that. That's the process. And that's why this new birth is absolutely necessary. We cannot, and we, and we don't want to, and we won't be good enough to be a part of God's uh, kingdom, to earn his approval, to live in a suitable or appropriate way. And this is why Jesus is doubling down and saying, you don't need to touch up around the edges. You need to be completely born again. You need a complete makeover. And here in the text that we hit this transition point uh, in uh, verse Eight, And we're heading towards the second point here, uh, but we're not there yet. In verse 8 it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus goes on to explain um, how, how we're born again, and, and, and he uses the analogy of uh, wind. <laughs> Wind can't be controlled, and, and before we had the Bureau of Meteorology, we, we couldn't even predict where it was going, but we could see its effects very clearly, unmistakably. It, it blew everywhere and anywhere. The trees would sway and would hear the wind swooshing and leaves are moving. We can see the effects of wind, even though we can't understand where it's going or, or predict it or control it. In the same way, the spirit can't be controlled 
or understood in that, in that same way, but we can see his effects. We can see when he causes someone to be reborn, when he causes new life in somebody, the effects are unmissable and undeniable. So I guess the next question is, what, what, is, what are the effects of this new birth? And, and so we're going to continue through this text and see, see what, what Jesus says about that. In verse 9 to 13, it says this. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If, you have, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, we, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus is at this point confused and he's not, he's not following Jesus. And Jesus is disappointed about that. He's the best of the best, the cream of the crop. He's got the Old Testament. He studies it and he doesn't see what Jesus is talking about. And there's a lot to say here on that, on that small chunk. But suffice to say, he's contrasting and highlighting Nicodemus's shallow, small un- understanding and vantage point on on salvation compared to his perspective, God's perspective on salvation. Nicodemus comes asking questions on whether Jesus is in or out of, of the rabbinic or pharisaical circles. And, and Jesus is rocking up going, there's a much bigger question here. Are you in or out of the kingdom? And that's the last we hear from Nicodemus. He just fades into the background. And Jesus just starts teaching him and schooling him on what the truth is. And this is where we arrive at our second point. The means, the means of entering the kingdom. And this is focusing on the role of the Son of God, Jesus. So we continue through the story and Jesus, as the authority, looking at salvation from God's perspective, explains what the effect of the new birth is. The effect of the the new birth is that the Spirit opens our eyes to see. He turns our grayscale world to color. He, He makes us able to place our faith in Jesus. God the Spirit makes us able to utilize what God the Son has done for us to enter his kingdom for salvation. So what does God the Son do? What what is God the Spirit opening our eyes to see of God the Son? Well, read with me and Jesus explains what he does. In verses 14 to 15, Jesus foreshadows what he's going to do. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus would immediately know here what Jesus is referring to. He would know what what Jesus is um, echoing here. It's a story of the bronze serpent back in the book of Numbers, and back in a very significant stage in Israel's history. The Israelites, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, have been stuck in intense slavery in Egypt. God has delivered them with a mighty hand out of that intense slavery and led them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the Ten Commandments. And, and, and these Ten Commandments are, are God showing what it looks like to live under his rule and reign and what it looks like to enjoy his rule as opposed to the Egyptian rule. And they set out in the wilderness from Mount Sinai, heading to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And instead, along the way, what did the Israelites do? 
They grumble and they complain. They try to usurp Moses at one point. They, they complain about wanting to go back to Egypt after all that they've been through there. And God punishes them justly for their disobedience and for um, their ignorance. One of these stories is the story of the bronze serpent that Jesus is, is alluding to here. As they're walking through the wilderness to the promised land, um, the people rebel against God and Moses. And they say, you've brought us out here to die in, in the desert, which is completely false. <laughs> and God punishes them by sending snakes to go into their camp. And they cry out to Moses. And Moses prays to God. And God, in his mercy, goes, make a bronze snake, put it on a pole, and stick it up in the middle of the community so that anyone who looks at the bronze snake who's been bitten by it will be saved, will, be, will have life. And Jesus is likening that story to what he's going to do. In the same way, despite our own sin and rebellion, that what we're talking about earlier, despite being spiritually dead, God the Son is going to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, will be able to see and enter the kingdom of God. And what did Jesus do? Like the bronze snake, Jesus was lifted up on a Roman crucifix and he hung there and took the rightful punishment. He took the wrath of God. He took God's justice against our sin in our own place. God could have poured it out justly on us like he did in a very small way by sending snakes into the camp of Israel. But instead, God makes a way for us to have life. God makes a way for us to have restored relationship with him, to enter and see his kingdom. Because the reality is, in our current state, we are not suitable for the kingdom. And because God is just, he can't just turn a blind eye to all our evil. Who who would want to believe in a God who claims to be loving, yet turns a blind eye to all the brokenness and all the pain and all the evil in the world? Not me. (laughs) So instead... God comes himself to take his own punishment. God the Son comes, dies, rises, so that we would not have to be punished. And he's lifted up so that everyone who believes, anyone who looks to Jesus, anyone who sees Jesus, places their faith in Jesus, will have eternal life, will be be able to enter the kingdom beginning right now and enjoy its full culmination, its full completion when Jesus returns in the future. And this is why the new birth is so essential, is so important. Uh, Jeff referenced this a few weeks back. The Holy Spirit is the revealing one. And so the Holy Spirit steps into our rebellion, into our sin, revives our corpse and points our eyes to Jesus. So we see him lifted up in our place. So we place our faith in him. The new birth that God, the Holy Spirit does is that he renovates us so deeply that he gives us new, de- new desires that express itself in looking at Jesus in a positive response to hearing the gospel message. J.A. Metters, he's an author, and he puts it this way when he talks about um, the, the work of the Spirit. The Spirit goes and shows you the glories of the gospel, and you agree. Glorious. When the Spirit goes to work, he brings you to the moment When you believe, you are convinced, you have faith, the grace is irresistible. When you were dead in your sins, he called you with the gospel and he made you alive in Christ. And this is huge. Like This is huge. 
Because it shows us how deeply involved God is in your salvation, in my salvation, in our salvation. He's involved at every single step. And this should give you immense joy and reassurance when you feel like you are failing and falling short. Because seeing the kingdom, that was all God. That that was him opening your eyes, entering the kingdom. That was all God. That was Jesus dying in your place for you. And if he's brought you this far, he's not going to stop mid-project. He's not going to stop now. He's going to see you right to completion, right to the end. When you're living Christ-like in his presence, enjoying dwelling with him, praising him, glorifying him in the new creation, beginning right now and, and when Jesus returns. That should be immensely reassuring. <laughs> immensely reassuring. And that brings us to the final part of this conversation. Well, it's not really a conversation at this point. It's just Jesus monologuing. But we'll get to the third point is the plan. The plan for us to enter the kingdom. And this is focusing on the role of God the Father. Um, at this point, like the conversation ends and it sort of shifts to a, um, a reflection by John, the author of the, of the gospel, um, reflecting on what Jesus has just said. And you might notice, depending on your translation, when you look at the in your Bibles, that speech, new speech quotes begin or the red text ends, or you'll see that there's a, sometimes a delineation, depending on your translation. And we, we come to probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3.16. And it says this in verse 16 um, to 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only. <laughs> and this verse basically preaches itself. <laughs> It shows off the heart of God behind this entire plan. It shows the triune God behind this plan for us to be saved. That what the Spirit does, that what the Son has done is all grounded in love. And it shows us that God the Father loves this world. This world that we spent time describing uh, earlier. Spiritually dead world. Rebellious world, ungrateful world, ignorant world, antagonistic world, indifferent world. This world that includes you and me, and that includes way more than just the Jews. It extends to everyone, this entire world. God loves it. God loves us. And in fact, this love for the world, this plan to save the world, is an overflow of the Father's love for his Son. It's an overflow out of the Father's love for the Son. And this is why God the Father sent the Son. The Father gave up his most prized, precious, loved, unique, one and only Son for his enemies. A Son who willingly laid down his own life for us so that we may live. The Father loves the spiritually dead world so much that he wants them to be caught up and to enjoy the deepest expression of love, the love between the Father and the Son, the eternal life that flows out of the Godhead. And in the final verses, John just continues to dismantle the notion that we contribute anything to salvation. It's all God. We just have to believe. It's the Spirit that causes new birth, 
that, that helps cause us to see our sinfulness and to lift our eyes up to the one who willingly laid down his own life, the son, so that we would undeservingly enter his kingdom. And, and, and as we do that, we are caught up and swept up into love for Jesus, for what he's done for us. And, and God wants us to participate in loving Jesus, in loving the son. This, this is an incredible, beautiful God. And you can just see how this story showcases the beauty of the triune God, how intentional he is, how good he is, how gracious he is to break into our desperate, bleak situation and give us new life, salvation in God. And this is how God planned and enacted and uses the gospel for our salvation. And honestly, the only response to this, if you're a Christian, is just to worship God. Is just to praise God. Not any God, but this God that has stepped into your life and caused you to be reborn, to see Jesus. A God that gets down the muck and mess of our lives, that pulls us out of it, sets our eyes upon Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sins so we could live in right relationship with God and enter his kingdom, to get caught up in the Father's love for the Son, all beginning now and and, and culminating in the glorious return of Jesus. And, and as we wrap up, uh, it's fascinating how over the Gospel of John, um, we see the, the story of Nicodemus. And I think we see the effect of the new birth in Nicodemus before our very eyes. Right here, he's got a, a, a small and shallow understanding of what's going on he's trying to see whether jesus is suitable for his um jude like for his political causes and and in chapter seven though we see him starting to defend jesus in public so it's not nighttime anymore in public he's defending jesus and then in chapter 19 we see him at the burial of jesus where jesus has just been lifted up he's caught up and he's compelled to jesus over the story of John. And that's evidence of what I think is the new birth in Nicodemus, causing him to look up to Jesus. And right now, some of you right now will be in that same journey that Nicodemus was on. In some of you, the spirit is stirring. You're starting to see your own sinfulness. You're starting to look to Jesus, see how beautiful he is, how good he is, what all that he has done for you. And if you're starting to feel that and see that, then you just need to believe. You just need to step in and and place your faith on what Jesus has done. Place your faith into into this God. Place your life in the hands of this God, this incredible God. That's what I I urge you to do. So I urge you to do. I'm going to pray for us, and I'd love if you could pray, pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for this story, this conversation we, we uh, get to read between Nicodemus and Jesus. We thank you that it showcases the, the intentionality and, and the, the beauty of, this, of you, Lord. In your triune nature, how, how the Spirit opens our eyes and causes us to be born again. How Jesus dies in our place so that we don't have to. <laughs> how you, Father, planned this all out, how you, how you chose us, how you um, planned all this out, Lord. 
God, we love you. Would we just respond in praise and worship right now, Lord? And if we're on that journey, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in those people's hearts so that they place their faith in Jesus, lean on Jesus, believe on Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.